Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcasts are listened to. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Churchwell, Acton's Director of Program Outreach, and Dan Huger, Research Associate and Librarian here at Acton. I guess I'll have to be referring to you by your last name so we don't get too much confusion going on. Uh, today, we'll be discussing rising crime in American cities and the strength of America's institutions while they are under assault. But first, I want to go to the border, and that's both the southern border and really any border for, uh, which a plane can cross at this point, because we have, as I see it, dueling refugee crises at the moment. Uh, we have first, the first one to really start was Afghanistan. When we pulled out of Afghanistan, there were a bunch of people uh, to whom that we had made promises that we would get them out. They were SIV holders. Uh, they had a chance to come over here. And because of the way that we bugged out of Afghanistan quite quickly, it's been a bit of a mess. Uh, and in terms of how to handle those refugees has been a issue of some political controversy. So has the issue at our southern border where uh, over the weekend at Del Rio, they were finally have finally cleared what got at times was as many as 14,000 uh, migrants coming from various different places, some coming from Haiti in the wake of the uh, earthquake that had happened there, uh, but people coming from South America, from Mexico, uh, trying to cross our southern border and claim refugee status. Now, there's obviously political hot buttons within all of this. Immigration was a huge topic of the last four or five years, and how do we address it? But trying to separate out the actual refugee cases, how should we be approaching this? It strikes me there's not a lot of serious consideration being given to these questions right now. Again, there's not a lot of serious consideration being given to many important things in uh, American life and world life right now. But how should we go about approaching refugee situations uh, with questions of things like national sovereignty, uh, you know, the uh, border crossings that have created a situation where people come across, they claim asylum status, they get a summons to show up for a court date that they likely never show up to. And even in the interim, while all that's being processed, just hang out in the country. It strikes me that the situation is untenable, but very few people are on offer with either solutions or at least an approach to how we should think about this. So part of the part of both of these crises was one of the similarities. There's there's no infrastructure to deal with this. We had a haphazard withdrawal from Afghanistan. There was no process. It was changing day by day on when people are supposed to come to the airport, when they're supposed to stay home. There is no safe way in Afghanistan to process those people there. We have an asylum process. We have programs. We have laws granting refugees certain sort of rights of due process for their applications to be considered. We don't have any infrastructure to deal with that. We do not have Ellis Island anymore. We don't have. And it seems to me that, and this is this has been a crisis that has been a crisis as long as I've been alive. Um, this is the great sort of unsettled question in American politics. And many people have tried sort of comprehensive reforms. Each and every one have failed. And each and every one has put together, cobbled together these uh, temporary solutions that only seek to complicate the legal environment which these folks have to navigate. So part of it is just is just we have we have an aspiration to be a society that welcomes refugees. We don't have any actual dedication to making that happen. And this is why how you wind up with 14,000 people underneath a bridge. Yeah, the, the sausage making part of it is is the difficult. Having an aspiration towards it is one thing, but when you actually have to come up with a way you're going to handle it, it's a different situation. Right. And <clears throat> right now there's, I mean, the chaotic, uh, 
you know, 10-day-long process of evacuating everybody from Afghanistan, a large number of those, we, we had to figure out where to put those, and those were external to the United States. So right now in Germany, there are 10,000 refugees at Ramstein Air Force Base, um, 2,000, which are women who are pregnant. And so you think through all of these people who were evacuated, um, and like Dan Huger was saying, that there's no formal structure so that people have to invent it as they're going. And this the structure of the problem is just shifted to other institutions. So the Air Force is now trying to figure out how to house and feed and engage with 10,000 people, let alone trying to get them into America. And and so having a, the Ellis Island solution or, or some uh, sort of uh, procedure that would allow them clean and quick access just doesn't exist. Yeah. We should, I think, separate out at least these two current refugee crises because they are different in character. For sure. The promises that were made to people in Afghanistan and what uh, are basically a situation descended from our withdrawal from Afghanistan is one question. What's happening on the southern border seems uh, more to resemble uh, problems of illegal immigration, which I, to me <laughs> – talk about having aspirations and not really knowing what the process should be. Reason Magazine did this really great infographic uh, a handful of years ago talking about if you are a low-skilled laborer from Mexico or from South America, if you wait in the line, the line, if you don't currently have blood relatives in the United States, takes about 175 years in order to navigate the whole thing. We shouldn't be incentives matter, right? We shouldn't be surprised that for people who are looking at it knowing, well, my choices are either wait in a line that I will never get through or try to find a way into the country. We shouldn't be surprised that they take the latter. And if refugee status, claiming refugee status is one of those things that immediately gets you a hearing and then time spent in the country. And, you know, sadly, this is one of the sad parts about all of this is a lot of these people show up. They get the summons for a hearing and then they just kind of disappear and they're living below the level of normal society. They're kind of living in the shadows. And that's not good for anybody. Yeah. um, And part of this has to do with. I mean, a lot of this sort of migration among the Haitian community, it's interesting, like a lot of this was coordinated through WhatsApp and was, okay, here's a guy that got to the United States telling people, these are the towns in Mexico you should avoid because there are Mexican immigration officials there that would detain them. And you have this sort of increasing coordination among folks trying to enter the country in an increasing discoordination between the folks uh, here um, trying to manage this situation. And part of this is also, I mean, one of the interesting things that was sort of acknowledged by Vice President Harris when she recently told audiences, I believe, in Mexico addressing sort of Central American refugees, do not come. And because of the political theater involved in immigration, there was the expectation that, okay, the Biden administration, you know, President Biden campaigned on a more welcoming, inclusive society for immigrants. No material policy change, no infrastructure was changed to make that happen. So you have these folks who are coordinating among themselves who have... um totally misjudged the situation of what they will find. I appreciate you bring up political theater, um, too, because you're, you're right. It was coordinated, but there's I'm not sure if it was coordinated entirely um, from within the immigrant community. Uh, there it seems like there have been hintings and, and that there was external influences, because why was such a large concentration of immigrants put into Del or uh, contributed to getting them to Del Rio. It, it seems like the political theater, it, there, there's, there uh, are people trying to use the immigrants for political pawns in a way um, that just goes counter to what we think of people as people. Yeah. 
And and so the political theater, I think, runs both ways there as well. I don't think it was entirely, hey, let's just all show up. There was some sort of instigation that got them to think that this would be the right place to show up. And then some of that engagement happened, and they and um, they had the high concentration of Haitians in Del Rio. Yeah, th- this strikes me as the one of the worst kinds of political issues yeah. because it is one where both sides view having the issue as more important than solving the problem. And I remember hearing an interview with former President George W. Bush. He had a book come out not too long ago, which is a rather nice book of paintings that he has done of immigrants and storytelling about different immigrants, the businesses they've built, the things they've accomplished when they've come to America. And in the interview, they asked him about, well, you had this chance for this, you know, the gang of six or gang of eight. I can't remember which gang it was. Uh, immigration reform during his administration that failed. And he asked if, like, you know, who, who he thought was mostly to blame for that. Like, we thought we had an agreement. Chuck Schumer, who was the Senate uh, uh, Democrat leader in the Senate at the time, um, said more or less figured for the upcoming election in 2006, thought it would be more valuable to have the issue to campaign on than to actually do something to solve it. Now, look, I I understand the skepticism about any of these, um, you know, comprehensive immigration reform packages that get bandied about in Washington. uh, But doing something to address it, at least you're never going to have a perfect policy regime, right? Mm -hmm. So at least doing something, trying to address the problems as you see them, at least may clarify where you need to continue to work on it. But now we just have this situation no one is happy with. We're getting these situations like we see in Del Rio, like we see with Afghanistan that we don't quite know how to handle. And... The political actors who should be the responsible parties in all of this looking to figure out how do we address this would rather have the crisis because the crisis seems to politically benefit them. For, for sure. The crisis does benefit them. And, and we saw that over uh, the weekend with the pictures of the um, different border guards, uh, people that are unfamiliar with what it means to ride Western. Yes. And it looked like the pictures, it looked from still photographs, like the possibility of whipping was going on or, or some sort of prodding. The evolution which, of the language on that was fascinating too, it was. right? Because it went from being whipped to whip-like objects. Like my computer is plugged in right now with a whip-like object, mm-hmm. which is the cable for it. it right. The language got very bizarre. And and people just, just misunderstood. And, and even the photographer that took the majority of those stills was like, look, this was not the narrative. This was not going on. This is how fast-paced Western writing is. And nobody was coming into contact and, and being whipped. It, it, but the pictures themselves. And mm-hmm. so everything is set up. Um, to take a political angle, to make people angry. But like you said, not at the issue that people actually want to come to our country still. They want asylum. They want a better life. I mean, the classic Ellis Island offer of American prosperity to these people. Um, that doesn't seem that the people in the middle of the political conversation don't seem to actually be uh, what people are actually interested in solving. You, you would have think we learned our lesson on how still photographs aren't the best means of communicating exactly what is happening after the Covington Catholic story, where mm-hmm. you have immediately people assuming based on a still photograph uh, what had happened in the moments leading up to it without realizing if you know photographers, like what you do, you, you press the button and you get a whole bunch of shots and you'll go through afterwards and find the best ones. But that, you know, a picture may say a thousand words, but it doesn't tell the full story. Mm-hmm. You think we would have learned that lesson by now, or or maybe you don't based on the way things seem to go. I want to throw out two questions to both of you before we move on. Dan, since you just, uh, Dan Churchwell, since you just evoked uh, Ellis Island, perhaps the, the, the promise of, of the Statue of Liberty, of the inscription on there. Do we have what obligation do we have as Americans understanding the nature of our founding of our heritage? What obligation do we have to refugees as a result of that? Well, I had the chance to to visit Ellis Island for the first time just uh, three years ago. At it, we were at an Acton conference, and um, the tour is really evocative, and and you get to walk through the whole um, island and see all of the infrastructure that was built and the the little museum that that is there on the island. I think it exhibits some of the best of what America had to offer to allow people to come 
and partake of some of the the promises and and the virtue of what it looked like to be American. And it seems definitely that we have lost the opportunity, uh, or at least the the ability to attract people like that in such a way that doesn't create a political argument. Like, why not have um, – there, there's so many things wound up in this, you know, demographics, um, the idea that by 2050 we will be um, – the the white population will be the minority. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and so there's fear. People have certain kinds of fears. Um, but overall, I, I think we are missing an opportunity by not – Getting this problem fixed in such a way that we can have more immigration in a, in a in an understandable and more coherent way. I mean, the solutions are not difficult. I mean, there are people that do policy work on these sorts of things. You don't have these issues in Canada. You don't have these issues in you know you have you have issues of illegal migration into Europe, but you have a much more coherent system throughout much of Europe. Um, you have a very coherent system in Australia. Uh, all of these models exist. The problem is the politics. Um, there is, I'm, I'm reading recently a biography of uh, uh Prime Minister Rao of India, who did a lot of the economic liberalization in the 90s. And uh, there's a, a point the author of the book, uh, Vinay Siddhapati, um, talks about how Rao would halt reforms periodically. And he talks about how Rao would not dither because he was unable to tell good policy from bad. He vacillated because sometimes the correct policy did not make for good politics. And the correct policy has not made for good politics in this country for a very long time. Yeah, uh, all the hard choices in life are between competing good things and competing mm-hmm. bad things because the choice between a good thing and a bad thing isn't a choice. Uh, that seems to be true of this current legal and political regime. But I think you're right. The lack of any – the lack of clear rule of law on any of this, that people understand what the rules are is – hurting us and, and making it such a, a dicey political issue. Uh, one, one final question on this topic. From a Christian perspective, what obligation do we have to refugees like this? Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not someone who holds any ecclesiastical authority, but the way that I think about this obligation is there is a general obligation to hospitality. There is a general obligation to do good to our neighbors, and our neighbors are not conditioned by nationality. However, it's also very, there's a, there's, there's a very naive way that you could say that, which means, okay, that means we throw the open borders, all are welcome. Now, the question of citizenship, of migration, of immigration, naturalization, is different from giving a hospitable point for possible entry where people's cases can be considered on their merits. And that's different from a general sort of concern for these folks. I mean, a lot of this migration, all of this migration is due to institutional failures in other countries around the world. These Haitians are here because the Haitian government in many ways, has profoundly failed them for generations. And we also have an obligation internationally to make sure that we do not have, that that the community of nations itself can adapt rule of law, can develop economically. Again, that does not mean that authorizes the Marine Corps to go into Haiti and reconstruct it from the ground up. But there's a, there's a, there's a pragmatic element to all of this that has to animate, that has to be considered as well as our convictions surrounding the dignity of human persons. And, uh, that can be a difficult needle to thread and people will come with different pragmatic answers to that question. Um, and it's important that while we forefront these questions of dignity, while we, forefront these these sorts of uh, 
the, you know, religious commitments to neighbor and to service. We don't confuse those where there's somebody who might be on the opposite side of the of a particular immigration policy with them of us devaluing and dismissing them as not having those theological convictions or concerns as well. I, I largely agree with you, Dan. And and there there can be some sloppy exegesis, if you will, around some of the Old Testament conversations about the foreigner or or those um, kinds of verses that are trotted out, at least a lot in the Protestant, uh, the evangelical world that, that I'm most familiar with, um, that kind of uh, create more... Uh, disambiguation or misunderstanding about what it means and just to have raw open borders. And so there are very clear nation state questions here mm-hmm. that I think are valid questions of justice, questions like you brought up uh, about rule of law and, and how, how would we do this efficiently and in a way that does honor the other honor the foreigner coming in. And, uh, and so it's more complex than just um, sometimes in, in the Protestant world, the dueling verses, the Bible verses, you know, can, can be largely unhelpful when, when thinking through this in any kind of real way. Let's move from the borders into the inner cities and into America's major cities where we've been seeing for really a couple of years now, crime rising again. So the story of crime in American cities is an interesting one, in part because what we observed between really the late 1970s, my my dad's from New York City and left New York in, in the big, basically at the end of the 1970s, uh, when New York was in a bad spot. It was not a particularly safe place to be. I mean, you get the 1977, the Bronx is burning. Um, you, If you look at even the movies that were made around that time, there were movies made in New York City, but they were movies like Death Wish and Panic in Needle Park, right? And not exactly the sunniest and most optimistic version of all of that. And then through the 80s into the 90s, in, in New York in particular, you have this dramatic decrease in crime, particularly violent crime. And what is interesting is you often hear this conversation circle around the ideas of like broken windows policing, which was implemented in Rudy Giuliani's New York in the 90s, as people offering up, this is the explanation for why crime declined. But you can look at other major cities over the same period of time and you see similar declines in crime that didn't use those kinds of policing tactics. So what's interesting about the the decline from where we were in, in the late 70s is that we aren't totally sure why it happened, which makes having conversations now about increasing crime in American cities a harder one to have because we went through this period where it became less of an issue. But because we're not certain why that happened, we're less certain of what to do about it now. I, I would commend two things to people. And we'll put them in the show notes. One, the most recent edition of National Review focuses uh, uh, very much so on the crime question. Uh, and David French's uh, Sunday French Press newsletter also addressed questions of what we did in reaction to crime and, and how we should think about it going forward. But I, I want to throw this out to you, um, recognizing that this is a growing problem and the orientation of the of the conversation about crime leading up to this in the last few years had primarily been about criminal justice reform. How should we think about criminal justice reform efforts like the First Step Act, which was passed, vis-a-vis what we're seeing now with rising crime in cities? I mean, part of this is a difficult question. I had a, I had a great conversation with Anthony Bradley on Acton Line um, in the wake of the riots that gripped mo- much of the country. And we were talking about these issues of crime and policing. And in the United States, we have these statistical aggregates that tell us crime goes up, crime goes down. One of the interesting things in that National Review piece, and one of those National Review pieces, was talking about how much New York City itself drove the aggregates back then. That a lot of the crime in the in the in the rise. I mean, there was a general rise in crime, but a lot of that was highly localized, and. Issues of policing are always highly localized. There are different sets of institutions, incentives. You have in some contexts, sheriff is elected democratically. You have another where a police chief is appointed. You have 
uh, you know, different levels of powers with police unions, different community issues. So I think it's important to realize that we're never going to be able to extrapolate from these aggregates a one-size-fits-all solution from this just because of the nature, the nature of how crime develops in communities. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't strategies that can be good strategies or bad strategies. Um, one of those strategies that is sadly lacking in San Francisco is, you know, prosecuting criminals. Um, it's important that if we have laws, that there's a credible threat of prosecution when so- once someone is uh, arrested for that sort of thing. So um, there are, you know, there might not be a one-fits-all solution because there's not a one-size-fits-all problem. There are some communities that are fine. There are some communities that are really, really struggling right now. And I think we need to keep this in mind when we talk about, you know, it's a national trend, yes, but that national trend is instantiated in different contexts throughout the country. Well, in the in the press release itself that came out today from the FBI, it says, caution against ranking. Each year when crime in the United States is published, some entities use the figures to compile rankings of cities and counties. These rough rankings provide no insight into the numerous variables that mold crime in particular towns, cities, counties, states, etc. They lead to a simplistic and or incomplete analysis analyses that often create misleading perceptions and and it goes on. So I agree with you, Dan, on on this concept. It's and there's two points that I would like to make is is that one, 2020 as a baseline for anything. Anything, I am I'm just highly proud I'm skeptical of of that idea. I mean it was such a strange it seemed like a decade in one year. You know, I mean it was just this punctuated equilibrium time. So whether it's crime or economic stability or what you know, what have you, what measure, I'm I'm just dubious of of that to some degree. Want to give that a pass or an asterisk. You know, mm-hmm. because of the nature of what the year was. But then secondly, I think we, we love statistics and we want the explanatory power of some number. Um, and like Dan already said, the complexity of this or digging down and even in their own press release, we we like to look at one little statistic and try to extrapolate something that's much larger and, in my argument, more dubious than, than it is. Yeah, I, I'm struck by Dan's point again that we're, we're back to a, uh, a Dan Huger's point that we're back to a conversation a bit about rule of law, right? So in San Francisco, you pointed out the crimes that are committed that are not mm. prosecuted and that people know are not going to be prosecuted. Uh, in Chicago, where I was living most recently before moving here to Grand Rapids, What's the, you know, as I would go around the country and I would say to people, they ask, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Chicago. I, I always got like one of four different things that people then wanted to talk about. It was always either the Chicago Cubs, um, corruption, deep dish pizza, or the shootings. And for years, I would tell people when they bring up the shootings that, you know, it was like, that's really bad. I'm like, yeah, it, it is a very bad problem. And I don't mean to diminish that at all. It also happens in s- about six neighborhoods. In the city of Chicago, if you're not in um, Austin, East Garfield Park, Inglewood, a handful of others, the risk was always for years very, very low that this would be an issue for you. It has spread more. And I, I should make that very clear. I lived in Woodlawn right before I moved. And about six weeks before we left the city, someone was shot on my block. But one of the big problems that is not talked about in this context is that you, it was, one, very difficult to acquire a firearm in the city of Chicago, in the state of Illinois. Many of them come from other states. They are often from straw purchasers. And they don't prosecute, by and large, the straw purchases. So when that whole system continues to churn and bring weapons into the city that way, and you you know you're not going to get prosecuted from doing it, there's not much of an incentive for you to not do it. But I think just even the point within the city of Chicago of it's not the entire city of Chicago, it's certain isolated places. Um, again, even within the context of what you're saying of like trying to come up with these rankings, you can't even treat the whole city of Chicago exactly mm-hmm. the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think people are drawn to stories like uh, a week ago, there was a story out of Florida where a, a man with 28 felonies 
ambushed two uh, Florida law enforcement officers, and it, it's all on video. And it, it, I mean, it honestly is horrific. But they were trying to figure out why was this man allowed uh, twenty eight felonies? Why is he out of jail? Like, what what is the is there discretion? Is there uh, is it overcrowded? You know, and there's there's a lot of conversation, but we're drawn to those stories um, because largely it is complex. Mm-hmm. And having I grew up in a law enforcement family. My father was a prosecutor for forty four years. I mean, I, I he has some stories to tell, and uh, and, and think through what it means to be uh, have coherent policies in for judges in sentencing sentencing structures but then there's also an economic incentive in certain states if you study much about private prisons and what they have added to the complexity of what it means to incarcerate mm-hmm. people um, it, it just overall is very a complex question that I think any any raw just one statistic I, I don't really like what the New York Times did with the statistic over the weekend and showed it as a bar graph. Yeah. And, and it looked, uh, as one commentator said, it looked like there were resurrections rather than murders in some of the years, just how it was reflected yeah. In, the, yeah. in the graphic. And so it, uh, um, I think we just need to be, be careful with how we approach it. Well, and one of the things to think about, and this goes back to the immigration issues, is there's, there's one thing to have a stated policy preference. There is another thing to have all of the aspects of the criminal justice system, from prosecutors to law enforcement officers to sort of the political leaders of communities and cities doing this. This is an intense amount of coordination and... Um, and it is it's just it's it's very tricky to navigate so you could have a whole host of again the, there's always these political constraints what you saw in new york city was a broad consensus that crime was a problem there is a broad consensus over how to approach it there was buy in from the political class there was buy in from city officials and progress was able to be made and in some cases, those political incentives don't line up until a situation gets bad. And that's unfortunate and that's tragic. But, um, you know, this is this is the good news here is this has people talking about this and this has people engaged because crime is a problem. You know, these rule of law situations are a problem. Prosecutorial failure to prosecutorial misconduct and then just simply the failure to prosecute are huge problems. There are problems in the law enforcement community. But this this adds, I think, well, what I'm hoping to this this uh, the, the this sort of news item adds to the conversation is we had a tendency among some people to sort of devalue and dismiss the role of law enforcement in communities. And there was the whole sort of defund the police. And there were all sorts of post hoc rationalizations for what that means. But it was fundamentally, um, it had other concerns, other concerns about racial justice, equity, all of those might be valid concerns. But living in a life of community is about balancing values. And it's about making trade-offs. And mm-hmm. we can't – and this reminds us that that those trade-offs are remade and that we can't ignore these problems. Yeah, what, what concerns me is how this issue and other issues like we were discussing with, with the border and immigration and refugees is the reactionary – uh, takes that it induces from people. So what you were talking about in terms of judge sentencing and all of that, uh, if you go back a few decades, there was this belief that you know judges were letting people off too easy. And so you got in a lot of different types of crimes, mandatory minimum mm-hmm. sentencing, yep. which takes Three the, strikes di- right, the, yeah, the discretion yeah. entirely out of the hands of judges to right. say, well, just because this is a, the third strike doesn't mean a life sentence makes sense here. Mm-hmm. And you had so you had that reaction against it. And then you have a reaction. The pendulum swings all the way back the other way. So we're now saying like we, we have to get rid of mandatory minimums entirely, which I think I would probably still be in favor of. Uh, but nonetheless, there is a concern and it was a legitimate concern about judges who are too lenient on people who shouldn't be out. So you get the situations of somebody with 28 felonies who is still out there and able to commit a crime like that. I think the other thing that makes it worse and. 
Dan Huger, you pointed to this a, a moment ago with defund the police is such a bumper sticker. And I think uh, social media c- contributes to this in two ways. One, it because of even you know, tweets, you only have so many characters. It reduces complex mm-hmm. ideas down to very simple and provocative slogans like defund the police. And you do get the weird situation where, yes, you have a lot of post hoc rationalizations where people go, but we don't actually mean defund the police. What we mean is that. And then inevitably some voice would pop up. I think it was even in a New York Times op. I was like, no, we actually do mean defund the police. And so the bat- battling back and forth on all of that. But it also takes situations that are hundreds and hundreds of miles away from you and not even close to touching your community and making it seem like it's in your backyard. Whereas, you know, if you live in Garrison, Montana, you don't really need to have an outsized level of concern for what is happening in New York City. You can have a humanitarian concern. that The quality of life for people in New York is bad. New York's an important city. Chicago's an important city. And you don't want you know, the level of violence that exists in Chicago to exist in any major city. But it's not affecting your local community. And the way that we have you know, democratized the entirety of this country so that when you're in Garrison, Montana, you feel like it might as well be mm-hmm. in your backyard because you're watching the video of it happen on your phone. And I can't help but think this is very unhealthy for us. And I don't know that we figured out how we're going to deal with that yet. Stephen Covey figured out how to deal with this. Stephen Covey was a Mormon church leader and, of course, uh, management guru um, who talked about this in the seven habits of highly effective people. And he talked about one of the, one of the big issues in sort of personal effectiveness and your ability to transform your life and the lives of yours around you is to bring what he called your circle of concern in line with your circle of influence. And the circle of concern is all of those things that you may be concerned about abstract notions of justice, um, you know, an abhorrence of violence, all of that is fine. Bring that to your local context. Bring that to your community. Bring that to your city council. Bring that by interacting with your local police department in a constructive way. Bring that by being a neighbor in your community. Um, There's a great passage in the novel Dune where Duke Leo Atreides says, uh, let us not rail about justice as long as we have arms and the freedom to use them. There is a lot in this universe that's out of our control and will always be so. But there is always, we all, all have our own capacity for personal transformation and a way to bring that to our communities. And that's that's where our focus needs to be. And it's subsidiarity, right? I mean, as we talk a lot at ACT, and it, it's that kind of bringing the concept of subsidiarity to the, the policing question. Um, I think you're totally right. The, one interesting thing, too, is that when we think about this, there, there's a whole critique of like the true crime narrative. Mm-hmm. If you look at how America's Most Wanted, the the classic Fox show, yeah. I think it ran for over two decades. Yeah. Um, how it was created and why it was created, like you said, it, it, crimes in Montana, certain parts of Montana are different than crimes in New York City, mm-hmm. um, and and this idea of true crime or where uh, where are crimes actually happening? What percentage of crimes actually? Um, uh, exist. It, it, it's hard to tell a coherent narrative. And a lot of the people, they, they do it for, for financial gain. Mm-hmm. And these shows were wildly popular, um, but they largely gave a, a uh, outsized view of what really, how many kidnappings actually were happening I, and who did the kidnappings. That, that's and, an incredibly valuable point uh, that we tend to look at in these because of the compelling narrative power of the outliers. We tell the outlier stories mm-hmm. and it has the result of making people People think as if the outliers are going to norm. be the norm. Yeah. And with kid, you know, kidnappings is, I think, the perfect example of that. You know, I think we're all of, uh, of roughly around the age where there was the panic when we were younger about kids being kidnapped by just random people. And overwhelmingly, when you look at the data does not happen very often. It is often somebody very close to the family, someone in the family who is the one doing it. And yet there was this disproportionate sense of this stranger danger of all the things that I remember being told as a kid about 
people approaching you if you didn't know them. And in most cases, you know, if some random person comes up to you and asks you a question, even if you're a kid, it may seem a little bit weird, but they probably don't have any ill intent. And it made us, I think, very fearful. And it informed a generation of parents. Oh, absolutely. Who were those kids yeah. that were told all of this stuff who become the helicopter parents, who become the ones who are disproportionately concerned about things with a very low likelihood of happening. And you can say you want to guard against the you know, the extreme risks like that. But you can't. I just don't think you can let that dominate the way that you live your life, trying to guard against the extreme risks, try to guard against like the risks that are most present. But we have because of the narrative being just so overwhelming and you see all these true crime podcasts and the, the shows like uh, America's Most Wanted that you talked about. Yeah, that's the stuff that gets the attention and probably it doesn't deserve zero attention, but probably less than what we're actually giving. It. And it's really hard to unwind that moral imagination out of people. Like it's oh, yeah. hard to have a conversation. Like you said, when people call you, you're from Chicago and people think there's constant gun battles, you know, everywhere you go, there's just this impression through, through media. And, and it's hard to tell people, well, no, it's, it's, it, you need to have like a three hour conversation to quantify yeah, the, the, the aggregates things. problem again. Right. right you know, right. you, people would make the point that Chicago was more violent than Baghdad. And it's like, okay, if you're looking at aggregates, then yes, but like pretty much anywhere you would go around Baghdad at the time people were making this comparison, you were in some significant danger. Not true in Chicago. And these things don't translate one to one. But before we run out of time, I want to move to our, our third topic. There is a uh, very long opinion essay, uh, which is worth reading, though I, I have many disagreements with it, uh, in the Washington Post uh, on September 23rd from Robert Kagan entitled, Our Constitutional Crisis is Already Here. Uh, I think uh, what made this hit in the way that it did was uh, this piece coming out in conjunction with the uh, revelation of the memo from John Eastman, who was an attorney uh, at, he's at the Claremont Institute, who had offered up this rather novel theory of how the vice president of the United States in the process of counting the electoral college votes could more or less circumvent the process and declare Donald Trump the winner of all of it. Um, I will leave it to the legal experts to mm -hmm. break down what I think is, um, you know, the, you go through diff three different levels in the Eastman memo where it's like there are some legitimate concerns that he highlights in the very beginning of it. The way that uh, states just kind of willy nilly change the ways that they approached elections with no understanding of is this a temporary change? Is this a permanent change? Is this a wise change? They just did it because COVID made it possible for them to do so. And you go from those, it's very much like the underpants gnomes from South Park, where it's, it's you know, this legitimate concern, whole bunch of question marks, profit at the end, or in this case, Donald Trump is reelected. Let the legal experts sort that part out. But I think one thing we can agree on is that uh, the way we've understood elections, particularly presidential elections, to work in this country for more than 200 years uh, – this, what's laid out in that memo is very much not that. And to me, strikes me as just another example of the way we're kind of taking sledgehammers to American institutions. We, we've talked a lot about Ameri institutions in general on this program and the assaults that they've been under. Now, some of those I, I, are less intentional. They are the erosion of institutions over time. They are the aggregate of individual choices of people in and out of those institutions and the impact that those choices have on it. And I think there are also are stories like this of people willingly taking sledgehammers to institutions like that. And you heard a lot of analysis for all the concern going into the Trump administration that what our institutions hold up. You heard a lot of analysis at the end of it. It was like, yeah, they actually turned out they held up pretty well, right? I mean, we had a transition of power. Uh, it happened. It was messier than it's been in the past, but it still happened. My question is how long, given that erosion process I was talking about earlier that's kind of happening of its own accord in the aggregate. And then the people attacking it, I think, in the way that they are. How long do we think these institutions can hold up if we seem to be playing a very dangerous game of Jenga and trying to pull out as many of the supports and still leave the institutions standing as we can? So I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the counterintuitive and say that this is nothing new. I mean, we had Watergate. 
we had uh, the Johnson administration utilize the CIA against the Goldwater campaign. We had the election of 1876, which um, if anybody wants to go down to a rabbit hole, Hayes versus Tilden and how that was decided with dueling electoral colleges. Um, Interestingly enough, in the context of the Eastman memo, it creates the Electoral Act of 1876, which informs the way that we do a lot of the counting and all of that, which is what Eastman kind of unilaterally declares as well, presuming this is unconstitutional and then proceeds from there. Yeah. It, it, yes, absolutely. No. So if, if every time a president called on an attorney to draft him something legally dubious in order to, you know, forward his political goals. Um, this is, this is, this is nothing new. Um, and, and this showed up fairly robust, you know, election was certified. None of this came to pass. Um, and, you know, you, you had folks in 2000 voting against the certification for the election on grounds. And a lot of times, a lot of this is about, again, it's about the optics, it's the politics. A lot of people who did not vote to certify the elections in 2000, did they, did they really believe that the election was stolen? No, but they were trying to make a point about how they thought it was very strange that someone could win the majority of the votes and not become president. Now, that's a just not how our constitution functions, but that's a political position that they wanted to highlight through a sort of dramatic action. Um, I think the same is true with a lot of the folks who did not vote to certify the last election. This was about, for them, these election law changes. This was about, okay, um, we saw a lot of things we did not like in this past election, and we would like to draw attention to that. Now, all of this is not on the up and up. All of this is not necessarily the most honorable way to go about it. But this is the way we often rattle these cages. When, when President Biden was campaigning and refused to talk about whether or not he would, he would expand the Supreme Court, you know, he has not, since he's become president, ever done that. But that has a sort of political saleability and there is sort of a political market for threatening these institutions. I mean, granted, you know, those of us around this table are pretty institution friendly people. We know that there's an importance to these social institutions, that this is, in fact, integral to the rule of law and other things. But a lot of people look around and they say, what have these institutions done for me lately? And a lot of these institutions have failed people mm -hmm. and they welcome the criticism in the adversarial relationship towards them that many politicians have. Yeah. And near the end of the Kagan article, there was a great quote. Um, you know, he, he argues that ambition is a powerful antidote to moral qualms. And, uh, you know, to quote Lord Acton, uh, power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. This, there's this show where we're in my we're, we're back to this idea of theater mm -hmm. and 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 having uh, if the, if ambition if, if it's just raw ambition that people want and to see the most powerful, loudest person win, I mean, it, it creates a certain kind of political theater that while not new, I agree with you, Dan, not, not new necessarily, um, the power of social media, the power of um, some of the, the, the images, obviously January 6th, um, it should stay with us. Uh, is, is, is raw ambition and surrounding yourself with people who will let you do what you want or, or try to create a narrative of allowing you to do what you want um, truly healthy for, for the democracy, for our democracy. And I, I don't think it is. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree with you on that, that the we seem to have changed our orientation towards politics and the way that we treat it like a team sport now. And I've, I've argued for a while that I think it is, uh, you see the rise in popularity of socialism amongst young people, which I think has 
not nothing, but next to nothing to do with the actual tenets of socialism or Marxism or anything, and more of a desire for younger people who feel atomized to feel a part of something much larger than themselves. And there is this promise that within a socialist construct that we're all in it together. And I think it is it is also lent us to the performance and all of that uh, has escalated things in a way that we're not as much focusing on ideas of good governance of like trying to find a way with our fellow citizens to live together that turns it into, to quote a another philosopher of sorts, uh, Conan the Barbarian, the object becomes to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you and to hear the lamentations of their women. <laughs> and we are turning it now into this kind of, you know, they say that politics is war by other means, but we're, we're blurring the lines between the war part of it and the politics part of it. And that the institution, this is where my concern comes in, that when we continue to hammer away at them like this, okay, they've, they've, they've held up and they've held up. You have this erosion process. You have the battering of it. How long can they continue to hold up? And then what happens if they don't? What would have, what would have happened if Mike Pence would have been uh, seen it fit to do— Persuaded, be, yeah, Persuaded yeah. by this yeah. Eastman memo to do what was in there. What would have been the reaction to that? And I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, I— <laughs> It, it, to me, it seems, uh, to, to quote the classic philosophical maxim, uh, I see very little what is good, true, and beautiful about the current process. And I, I don't think that leads to virtue. That virtue language is almost impossible. You know, uh, this, this idea of moral qualms. I mean, it, it's just if I can um, – this is Machiavelli. You know, I mean, yeah. the, 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 this, these, these conversations are old. Um, but it, we're just – I think it's a concentration of them. Um, and again, compounded to the year 2020. Yes. Right? I, yeah. I, 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 we're back to that again. But I, I, I think it was such a strange year on so many levels. Um, that uh, I'm going to like def- defer to what you said about uh, letting the legal scholars sort out the minutia. But I, the, myself, I, the, the true good and beautiful, I just don't see it in our current contemporary political process. I think we should call it a wrap there. I want to thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please scroll down and look in the show notes for a link for where you can subscribe directly to this program on any of your favorite podcast apps, or just search Acton Unwind on whatever podcast app you prefer. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, please, so that more people can find this program. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.